Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and the Beasts of Tarzan, chapters 17 and 18. And now chapter 17, On the Deck of the Kincaid. When Mugambi had turned back into the jungle with the pack, he had a definite purpose in view. It was to obtain a dugout wherewith to transport the beasts of Tarzan to the side of the Kincaid. Nor was he long in coming upon the object which he sought. Just at dusk he found a canoe moored to the bank of a small tributary of the Ugambi, at a point where he had felt certain that he should find one. Without loss of time, he piled his hideous fellows into the craft and shoved out into the stream. So quickly had they taken possession of the canoe that the warrior had not noticed that it was already occupied. The huddled figure sleeping in the bottom had entirely escaped his observation in the darkness of the night that had now fallen. But no sooner were they afloat than a savage growling from one of the apes directly ahead of him in the dugout attracted his attention to a shivering and cowering figure that trembled between him and the great anthropoid. To Mugambi's astonishment, he saw that it was a native woman. With difficulty he kept the ape from her throat, and after a time succeeded in quelling her fears. It seemed that she had been fleeing from marriage with an old man she loathed and had taken refuge for the night in the canoe, "'that she had found upon the river's edge. "'Bugambi did not wish her presence, but there she was, "'and rather than lose time by returning her to the shore, "'the native permitted her to remain on board the canoe. "'As quickly as his awkward companions could paddle the dugout "'downstream toward the Ugambi and the Kincaid, "'they moved through the darkness.' It was with difficulty that Mugambi could make out the shadowy form of the steamer, but as he had it between himself and the ocean, it was much more apparent than to one upon either shore of the river. As he approached it, he was amazed to note that it seemed to be receding from him, and finally he was convinced that the vessel was moving downstream. Just as he was about to urge his creatures to renewed efforts to overtake the steamer, the outline of another canoe burst suddenly into view, not three yards from the bow of his own craft. At the same instant, the occupants of the stranger discovered the proximity of Mugambi's horde, but they did not at first recognize the nature of the fearful crew. A man in the bow of the oncoming boat challenged them just as the two dugouts were about to touch. For answer came the menacing growl of a panther, and the fellow found himself gazing into the flaming eyes of Sheeta, who had raised himself with his forepaws upon the bow of the boat, ready to leap in upon the occupants of the other craft. Instantly, Rokoff realized the peril that confronted him and his fellows. He gave a quick command to fire upon the occupants of the other canoe, and it was this volley and the scream of the terrified native woman in the canoe with Mugambi that both Tarzan and Jane had heard. Before the slower and less skilled paddlers in Mugambi's canoe could press their advantage and effect a boarding of the enemy, the latter had turned swiftly downstream and were paddling for their lives in the direction of the Kincaid, which was now visible to them. The vessel, after striking upon the bar, had swung loose again into a slow-moving eddy, which returns upstream close to the southern shore of the Ugambi, only to circle out once more and join the downward flow a hundred yards or so further up. Thus the Kincaid was returning Jane Clayton directly into the hands of her enemies. It so happened that as Tarzan sprang into the river, the vessel was not visible to him, and as he swam out into the night, he had no idea that a ship drifted so close at hand. He was guided by the sounds which he could hear coming from the two canoes. As he swam, he had vivid recollections of the last occasion upon which he had swum in the waters of the Ugambi, and with them a sudden shudder took the frame of the giant. 
but though he twice felt something brush his legs from the slimy depths below, nothing seized him, and of a sudden he quite forgot about crocodiles in the astonishment of seeing a dark mass loom suddenly before him where he had expected to still find open river. So close was it that a few strokes brought him up to the thing, when to his amazement his outstretched hand came in contact with the ship's side. As the agile ape-man clambered over the vessel's rail, there came to his sensitive ears the sound of a struggle at the opposite end of the deck. Noiselessly he sped across the intervening space. The moon had risen now, and though the sky was still banked with clouds, a lesser darkness enveloped the scene than that which had blotted out the sight earlier in the night. His keen eyes, therefore, saw the figures of two men grappling with a woman. That it was the woman who had accompanied Anderson toward the interior he did not know, though he suspected as much, as he was now quite certain that this was the deck of the Kincaid upon which chance had led him. But he wasted little time in idle speculation. There was a woman in danger of harm from two ruffians, which was enough excuse for the ape-man to project his giant thews into the conflict without further investigation. The first that either of the sailors knew that there was a new force at work upon the ship was the falling of a mighty hand upon a shoulder of each. As if they'd been in the grip of a flywheel, they were jerked suddenly from their prey. "'What means this?' asked a low voice in their ears. They were given no time to reply, however, for at the sound of that voice the young woman had sprung to her feet, and with a little cry of joy leaped toward their assailant. "'Tarzan!' she cried. The ape-man hurled the two sailors across the deck, where they rolled, stunned and terrified, into the scuppers on the opposite side, and with an exclamation of incredulity gathered the girl into his arms. Brief, however, were the moments for their greeting. Scarcely had they recognized one another than the clouds above them parted to show the figures of a half-dozen men clambering over the side of the Kincaid to the steamer's deck. Foremost among them was the Russian. As the brilliant rays of the equatorial moon lighted the deck, and he realized that the man before him was Lord Greystoke, he screamed hysterical commands to his followers to fire upon the two. Tarzan pushed Jane behind the cabin near which they had been standing, and with a quick bound started for Rokoff. The men behind the Russian, at least two of them, raised their rifles and fired at the charging ape-man, but those behind them were otherwise engaged, for up the monkey ladder in their rear was thronging a hideous horde. First came five snarling apes, huge man-like beasts, with bared fangs and slavering jaws, and after them a giant black warrior, his long spear gleaming in the moonlight. Behind him again scrambled another creature, and of all the horrid horde it was this that they most feared, Sheeta the panther, with gleaming jaws agape and fiery eyes blazing at them in the mightiness of his hate and of his bloodlust. The shots that had been fired at Tarzan missed him, and he would have been upon Rokoff in another instant had not the great coward dodged backward between his two henchmen and, screaming in hysterical terror, bolted forward toward the foxhole. For the moment, Tarzan's attention was distracted by the two men before him, so that he could not at the time pursue the Russian. About him the apes and Mugambi were battling with the balance of the Russian's party. Beneath the terrible ferocity of the beasts, the men were soon scampering in all directions, those who still lived to scamper, for the great fangs of the apes of Akut and the tearing talons of Sheeta already had found more than a single victim. Four, however, escaped and disappeared into the foxhole, where they hoped to barricade themselves against further assault. Here they found Rokoff, and enraged at his desertion of them in their moment of peril, 
no less than at the uniformly brutal treatment it had been his wont to accord them, that gloated upon the opportunity now offered them to revenge themselves in part upon their hated employer. Despite his prayers and groveling pleas, therefore, they hurled him bodily out upon the deck, delivering him to the mercy of the fearful things from which they had themselves just escaped. Tarzan saw the man emerge from the foxhole, saw and recognized his enemy, but another saw him even as soon. It was Sheeta, and with grinning jaws the mighty beast slunk silently toward the terror-stricken man. When Rokoff saw what it was that stalked him, his shrieks for help filled the air, as with trembling knees he stood, as one paralyzed, before the hideous death that was creeping upon him. Tarzan took a step toward the Russian, his brain burning with a raging fire of vengeance. At last he had the murderer of his son at his mercy. He had the right to avenge. Once Jane had stayed his hand that time that he sought to take the law into his own power and meet to rook off the death that he had so long merited. But this time, none should stay him. His fingers clenched and unclenched spasmodically as he approached the trembling Russian, beast-like and ominous as a brute of prey. Presently he saw that Sheeta was about to forestall him, robbing him of the fruits of his great hate. He called sharply to the panther, and the words, as if they had broken a hideous spell that had held the Russian, galvanized him into sudden action. With a scream he turned and fled toward the bridge. After him pounced Sheeta the panther, unmindful of his master's warning voice. Tarzan was about to leap after the two when he felt a light touch upon his arm. Turning, he felt Jane at his elbow. Do not leave me, she whispered. I am afraid. Tarzan glanced behind her. All about were the hideous apes of Akut. Some, even, were approaching the young woman with bared fangs and menacing guttural warnings. The ape-man warmed them back. He had forgotten for the moment that these were but beasts, unable to differentiate his friends and his foes. Their savage natures were roused by their recent battle with the sailors, and now all flesh outside the pack was meat to them. Tarzan turned again toward the Russian, chagrined that he should have to forego the pleasure of personal revenge, unless the man should escape Sheeta. But as he looked, he saw that there could be no hope of that. The fellow had retreated to the end of the bridge, where he now stood trembling and wide-eyed, facing the beast that moved slowly toward him. The panther crawled with belly to the blanking, uttering uncanny mouthings. Rokoff stood as though petrified, his eyes protruding from their sockets, his mouth agape, and the cold sweat of terror clammy upon his brow. Below him, upon the deck, he had seen the great anthropoids, and so had not dared to seek escape in that direction. In fact, even now one of the brutes was leaping to seize the bridge rail and draw himself up to the Russian's side. Before him was the panther, silent and crouched, Rokoff couldn't move. His knees trembled. His voice broke in inarticulate shrieks. With a last piercing wail he sank to his knees, and then Sheeta sprang. Full upon the man's breast the tawny body hurtled, tumbling the Russian to his back. As the great fangs tore at the throat and chest, Jane Clayton turned away in horror. But not so Tarzan of the apes. A cold smile of satisfaction touched his lips. The scar upon his forehead that had burned scarlet faded to the normal hue of his tanned skin and disappeared. Rukov fought furiously, but futilely, against the growling, rending fate that had overtaken him. For all his countless crimes, he was punished in the brief moment of the hideous death that claimed him at last. After his struggles ceased, Tarzan approached, 
at Jane's suggestion to wrest the body from the panther and give what remained a decent human burial. But the great cat rose snarling above its kill, threading even the master it loved in its savage way, so that rather than kill his friend of the jungle, Tarzan was forced to relinquish his intentions. All that night Sheeta, the panther, crouched upon the grisly thing that had been Nicholas Rokoff. The bridge of the Kincaid was slippery with blood. Beneath the brilliant tropic moon, the great beast feasted until, when the sun rose the following morning, there remained of Tarzan's great enemy only gnawed and broken bones. Of the Russians' party, all were accounted for except Polvich. Four were prisoners in the Kincaid's foxhole. The rest were dead. With these men, Tarzan got up steam upon the vessel, and with the knowledge of the mate, who happened to be one of those surviving, he planned to set out in quest of Jungle Island, but as the morning dawned there came with it a heavy gale from the west which raised a sea into which the mate of the Kincaid dared not venture. All that day the ship lay within the shelter at the mouth of the river, for, though night witnessed a lusting of the wind, it was thought safer to wait for daylight before attempting the navigation of the winding channel to the sea. Upon the deck of the steamer, the pack wandered without let or hindrance by day, for they had soon learned through Tarzan and Mugambi that they must harm no one upon the Kincaid, but at night they were confined below. Tarzan's joy had been unbounded when he learned from his wife that the little child who had died in the village of Maganmuzam was not their son. Who the baby could have been, or what had become of their own, they could not imagine, and as both Rokoff and Polvich were gone, there was no way of discovering there was, however, a certain sense of relief in the knowledge that they might yet hope. Until positive proof of the baby's death reached them, there was always that to buoy them up. It seemed quite evident that their little Jack had not been brought aboard the Kincaid. Anderson would have known of it had such been the case, but he had assured Jane time and time again that the little one he had brought to her cabin the night he aided her to escape was the only one that had been aboard the Kincaid since she lay at Dover. We'll return with Chapter 18, Polvich Plots Revenge, right after these sponsor messages. And now Chapter 18, Polvich Plots Revenge. As Jane and Tarzan stood upon the vessel's deck, recounting to one another the details of the various adventures through which each had passed since they had parted in their London home, there glared at them from beneath scowling brows a hidden watcher upon the shore. Through the man's brain passed plan after plan whereby he might thwart the escape of the Englishman and his wife. For so long as the vital spark remained within the vindictive brain of Alexander Polvich, none who had aroused the enmity of the Russian might be entirely safe. Plan after plan he formed only to discard each either as impractical or unworthy the vengeance his wrongs demanded. So warped by faulty reasoning was the criminal mind of Rokoff's lieutenant that he could not grasp the real truth of that which lay between himself and the ape-man, and see that always the fault had been, not with the English lord, but with himself and his confederate, and at the rejection of each new scheme, Polvich always arrived at the same conclusion, that he could accomplish not while half the breadth of the Ugambi separated him from the object of his hatred. But how was he to span the crocodile-infested waters? There was no canoe nearer than the Musula village. And Polvich was none too sure that the Kincaid would still be at anchor in the river. When he returned, should he take the time to traverse the jungle to the distant village and return with a canoe? Yet there was no other way, and so, convinced that thus alone might he hope to reach his prey, Polvich, with a parting scowl at the two figures upon the Kincaid's deck, turned away from the river. Hastening through the dense jungle, 
his mind centered upon his one fetich. Revenge! The Russian forgot even his terror of the savage world through which he moved. Baffled and beaten at every turn of fortune's wheel, reacted upon time after time by his own malign plotting, the principal victim of his own criminality, Polvich was yet so blind as to imagine that his greatest happiness lay in a continuation of the plottings and schemings which had ever brought him and Rokoff to disaster, and the latter finally to a hideous death. As the Russian stumbled onto the jungle toward the Mosula village, there presently crystallized within his brain a plan which seemed more feasible than any that he had as yet considered. He would come by night to the side of the Kincaid, and once aboard, and search out the members of the ship's original crew who had survived the terrors of this frightful expedition, and enlist them in an attempt to wrest the vessel from Tarzan and his beasts. In the cabin were arms and ammunition, and hidden in a secret receptacle in the cabin table was one of those infernal machines, the construction of which had occupied much of Polvich's spare time when he had stood high in the confidence of the nihilists of his native land. That was before he had sold them out for immunity and gold to the police of Petrograd. Polvich winced as he recalled the denunciation of him that had fallen from the lips of one of his former comrades ere the poor devil expiated his political sins at the end of a hempen rope. But the infernal machine was the thing to think of now. He could do much with that if he could but get his hands upon it. Within the little hardwood case, hidden in the cabin table, rested sufficient potential destructiveness to wipe out, in the fraction of a second, every enemy aboard the Kincaid. Polvich licked his lips in anticipatory joy and urged his tired legs to greater speed that he might not be too late to the ship's anchorage to carry out his designs. All depended, of course, upon when the King K departed. The Russian realized that nothing could be accomplished beneath the light of the day. Darkness must shroud his approach to the ship's side, for should he be sighted by Tarzan or Lady Greystoke, he would have no chance to board the vessel. The gale that was blowing was, he believed, the cause of delay in getting the Kincaid underway, and if it continued to blow until night, then the chances were all in his favor, for he knew that there was little likelihood of the ape-man attempting to navigate the tortuous channel of the Ugambi, while darkness lay upon the surface of the water, hiding the many bars and the numerous small islands which were scattered over the expanse of the river's mouth. It was well after noon when Povich came to the Mosula village upon the bank of the tributary of the Ugambi. Here he was received with suspicion and unfriendliness by the native chief who, like all those who came in contact with Rokoff or Polvich, had suffered in some manner from the greed, the cruelty, or the lust of the two Muscovites. When Polvich demanded the use of a canoe, the chief grumbled a surly refusal and ordered the white man from the village. Surrounded by angry, muttering warriors who seemed to be but wanting some slight pretext to transfix him with their menacing spears, the Russian could do naught else than withdraw. A dozen fighting men led him to the edge of the clearing, leaving him with a warning never to show himself again in the vicinity of their village. Stifling his anger, Polvich slunk into the jungle, but once beyond the sight of the warriors, he paused and listened intently. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
He could hear the voices of his escort as the men returned to the village, and when he was sure that they were not following him, he wormed his way through the bushes to the edge of the river, still determined in some way to obtain a canoe. Life itself depended upon his reaching the Kincaid and enlisting the survivors of the ship's crew in his service, for to be abandoned here amidst the dangers of the African jungle, where he had won the enmity of the natives, was, he well knew, practically equivalent to the sentence of death. A desire for revenge acted as an almost equally powerful incentive to spur him into the face of danger to accomplish his design, so that it was a desperate man that lay hidden in the foliage beside the little river, searching with eager eyes for some sign of a small canoe, which might be easily handled by a single paddle. Nor had the Russian long to wait before one of the awkward little skiffs came in sight upon the bosom of the river. A youth was paddling lazy out into midstream from a point beside the village. When he reached the channel, he allowed the sluggish current to carry him slowly along while he lolled indolently in the bottom of his crude canoe. All ignorant of the unseen enemy upon the river's bank, the lad floated slowly down the stream while Polvich followed along the jungle path a few yards behind him. A mile below the village, the black boy dipped his paddle into the water and forced his skiff toward the bank. Polvich, elated by the chance which had drawn the youth to the same side of the river as that along which he followed, rather than to the opposite side, where he would have been beyond the stalker's reach, hid in the bush close beside the point at which he was evident the skiff would touch the bank of the slow-moving stream, which seemed jealous of each fleeting instant which drew it nearer to the broad and muddy Ugambi, where it must forever lose its identity in the larger stream that would presently cast its waters into the great ocean. Snake-like, amidst the concealing foliage, lay the malevolent Russian. Cruel, shifty eyes gloated upon the outlines of the coveted canoe, and measured the stature of its owner, while the crafty brain weighed the chances of the white man should physical encounter with the black become necessary. Only direct necessity could drive Alexander Polvich to personal conflict, but it was indeed dire necessity which goaded him on to action now. There was time, just time enough, to reach the Kincaid by nightfall. Would the young native never quit his skiff? Polvich squirmed and fidgeted, the lad yawned and stretched. With exasperating deliberateness, he examined the arrows in his quiver, tested his bow, and looked to the edge upon the hunting knife in his loincloth. Again he stretched and yawned, glanced up at the river bank, shrugged his shoulders, and lay down in the bottom of his canoe for a little nap before he plunged into the jungle after the prey which he had come forth to hunt. Polvich half rose, and with tensed muscles stood glaring down upon his unsuspecting victim. The boy's lids drooped and closed. Presently his breast rose and fell to the deep breaths of slumber. The time had come. The Russian crept stealthily nearer. A branch rustled beneath his weight, and the lad stirred in his sleep. Polvich drew his revolver and leveled it upon the native. For a moment he remained in rigid quiet, and then again the youth relapsed into undisturbed slumber. The white man crept closer. He could not chance a shot until there was no risk of missing. Presently he leaned close above the Mosula. The cold steel of the revolver in his hand insinuated itself nearer and nearer to the breast of the unconscious lad. Now it stopped but a few inches above the strongly beating heart. But the pressure of a finger lay between the harmless boy and eternity. The soft bloom of youth still lay upon the brown cheek, a smile half parted the beardless lips. Did any qualm of conscience point its disquieting finger of reproach at the murderer? To all such was Alexander Polvich immune. A sneer curled his bearded lip 
as his forefinger closed upon the trigger of his revolver. There was a loud report. A little hole appeared upon the heart of the sleeping boy, a little hole about which lay a blackened rim of powder-burned flesh. The youthful body half rose to a sitting posture, the smiling lips tensed to the nervous shock of a momentary agony which the conscious mind never apprehended, and then the dead sank limply back into that deepest of slumbers from which there is no awakening. The killer dropped quickly into the skiff beside the killed. Ruthless hands seized the dead boy heartlessly and raised him to the low gunwale. A little shove, a splash, some widening ripples broken by the sudden surge of a dark hidden body from the slimy depths, and the coveted canoe was in the sole possession of the white man, more savage than the youth whose life he had taken. Casting off the tie rope and seizing the paddle, Povich bent feverishly to the task of driving the cliff downward toward the Ugambi at top speed. Night had fallen when the prow of the blood-stained craft shot out into the current of the larger stream. Constantly the Russian strained his eyes into the increasing darkness ahead, in vain endeavor to pierce the black shadows which lay between him and the anchorage of the Kincaid. Was the ship still riding there upon the borders of the Ugambi, or had the ape-man at last persuaded himself of the safety of venturing forth into the abating storm? As Polvidge forged ahead with the current, he asked himself these questions, and many more beside, not the least disquieting of which were those which related to his future. Should it chance that the Kincaid had already steamed away, leaving him to the merciless horrors of the savage wilderness? In the darkness it seemed to the paddler that he was fairly flying over the water, and he had become convinced that the ship had left her moorings, and that he had already passed the spot at which she had lain earlier in the day, when there appeared before him beyond a projecting point which he had but just rounded, the flickering light from a ship's lantern. Alexander Polwich could scarce restrain an exclamation of triumph. The Kincaid had not departed. Life and vengeance were not to elude him after all. He stopped paddling the moment that he descried the gleaming beacon of hope ahead of him. Silently he drifted down the muddy waters of the Ugambi, occasionally dipping his paddle's blade gently into the current that he might guide his primitive craft to the vessel's side. As he approached more closely, the dark bulk of a ship loomed before him out of the blackness of the night. No sound came from the vessel's deck. Povich drifted unseen close to the Kincaid's side. Only the momentary scraping of his canoe's nose against the ship's planking broke the silence of the night. Trembling with nervous excitement, the Russian remained motionless for several minutes, but there was no sound from the great bulk above him to indicate that his coming had been noted. Stealthily he worked his craft forward until the stays of the bowsprit were directly above him, and he could just reach them. To make his canoe fast there was the work of but a minute or two, and then the man raised himself quietly aloft. A moment later, he dropped softly to the deck. Thoughts of the hideous pack which tenanted the ship induced cold tremors along the spine of the cowardly prowler. But life itself depended upon the success of his venture, and so was he enabled to steel himself to the frightful chances which lay before him. No sound or sign of watch appeared upon the ship's deck. Polvich crept stealthily toward the forecastle. All was silence. The hatch was raised, and as the man peered downward, he saw one of the Kincaid's crew reading by the light of the smoky lantern depending from the ceiling of the crew's quarters. Povich knew that man well, a surly cutthroat upon whom he figured strongly in the carrying out of the plan which he had conceived. Gently the Russian lowered himself through the aperture to the rounds of the ladder which led into the forecastle. He kept his eyes turned upon the reading man, 
ready to warn him to silence the moment that the fellow discovered him, but so deeply immersed with the sailor in the magazine that the Russian came, unobserved, to the forecastle floor. There he turned and whispered the reader's name. The man raised his eyes from the magazine, eyes that went wide for the moment as they fell upon the familiar countenance of Rokov's lieutenant, only to narrow instantly in a scowl of disapproval. "'The devil! Where did you come from? We all thought you were done for and gone when you ought to have gone a long time ago. His lordship will be mighty pleased to see you.' Polvich crossed to the sailor's side. A friendly smile lay upon the Russian's lips, and his right hand was extended in greeting, as though the other might have been a dear and long-lost friend. The sailor ignored the proffered hand, nor did he return the other's smile. "'I've come to help you,' explained Polvich. "'I'm going to help you get rid of the Englishman and his beast. "'Then there'll be no danger from the law when we get back to civilization. "'We could sneak in on them while they sleep. "'That is Greystoke, his wife, and that black scoundrel Mugambi. "'Afterward it will be a simple matter to clean up the beasts. "'Where are they?' "'They're below,' replied the sailor. "'But just let me tell you something, Polvich.' "'You haven't got no more show to turn us men against the Englishman than nothing. "'We had all we wanted of you and that other beast. "'He's dead, and if I don't miss my guess a whole lot, "'you'll be dead, too, before long. "'You two treated us like dogs, "'and if you think we got any love for you, you better forget it. "'You mean to say that you're going to turn against me?' "'demanded Povich. "'The other nodded, and then after a momentary pause, "'during which an idea seemed to have occurred to him, "'he spoke again.' "'Unless,' he said, "'you can make it worth my while "'to let you go before the Englishman finds you here.' "'You wouldn't turn me away in the jungle, would you?' "'asked Povich. "'Why, I'd die there in a week.' "'You'd have a chance there,' replied the sailor. "'Why, if I woke my mateys here, "'they'd probably cut your heart out. "'It's mighty lucky for you "'that I'm the one to be awake now, and not them.' "'You're crazy,' cried Povich. "'Don't you know that the Englishman will have you all hanged "'when he gets you back before the law, "'where the law can get hold of you?' "'No, he won't do nothing of the kind,' replied the sailor. "'He told us as much, "'for he says that there wasn't nobody to blame but you and Rokoff. "'The rest of us was just tools. See?' "'For half an hour the Russian pleaded or threatened "'as the mood seized him. "'Sometimes he was upon the verge of tears, "'and again he was promising his lister "'either fabulous rewards or condign punishment.' but the other was obdurate. He made it plain to the Russian that there were but two plans open to him. Either he must consent to being turned over immediately to Lord Greystoke, or he must pay to the sailor, as a price for permission to quit the Kincaid unmolested, every cent of money and article of value upon his person and in his cabin. "'And you'll have to make up your mind mighty quick,' growled the man, "'for I want to turn in. Come now, choose, his lordship or the jungle.' "'You'll be sorry for this,' grumbled the Russian. "'Shut up,' admonished the sailor. "'If you get funny, I may change my mind "'and keep you here after all.' "'Now Povich had no intention of permitting himself "'to fall into the hands of Tarzan of the Apes "'if he could possibly avoid it, "'and while the terrors of the jungle appalled him, "'they were, to his mind, infinitely preferable "'to the certain death which he knew he merited "'and for which he might look at the hands of the ape-man. "'Is anyone sleeping in my cabin?' he asked. The sailor shook his head. No, he said. Lord and Lady Greystoke had the captain's cabin. The mate is in his own, and there ain't no one in yours. I'll go and get my valuables for you, said Povich. 
"'I'll go with you to see that they don't try any funny business,' said the sailor, "'and he followed the Russian up the ladder to the deck. "'At the cabin entrance the sailor halted to watch, "'permitting Polovich to go alone into his cabin. "'Here he gathered together his few belongings that were to buy him "'the uncertain safety of escape, "'and as he stood for a moment beside the little table on which he had piled them, "'he searched his brain for some feasible plan "'either to ensure his safety or to bring revenge upon his enemies.' and presently as he thought there recurred to his memory the little black box which lay hidden in a secret receptacle beneath the false top upon the table on which his hand rested. The Russian's face lighted to a sinister gleam of malevolent satisfaction as he stooped and felt beneath the table top. A moment later he withdrew from its hiding place the thing he sought. He had lighted the lantern swinging from the beams overhead that he might see to collect his belongings, and now he held the black box well in the rays of the lamplight, while he fingered at the clasp that fastened its lid. The lifted cover revealed two compartments within the box. In one was a mechanism which resembled the works of a small clock. There was also a little battery of two dry cells. A wire ran from the clockwork to one of the poles of the battery, and from the other pole to the partition into the other compartment, a second wire returning directly to the clockwork. Whatever lay within the second compartment was not visible, for a cover lay over it, and appeared to be sealed in place by asphalt. In the bottom of the box, beside the clockwork, lay a key, and this Povich now withdrew and fitted to the winding stem. Gently he turned the key, muffling the noise of the winding operation by throwing a couple of articles of clothing over the box. All the time he listened intently for any sound which might indicate that the sailor or another were approaching his cabin, but none came to interrupt his work. When the winding was completed, the Russian set a pointer upon a small dial at the side of the clockwork. Then he replaced the cover upon the black box and returned the entire machine to its hiding place in the table. A sinister smile curled the man's bearded lips as he gathered up his valuables, blew out the lamp, and stepped from his cabin to the side of the waiting sailor. "'Here are my things,' said the Russian. "'Now let me go.' "'I'll first take a look in your pockets,' replied the sailor." "'You might have overlooked some trifling thing "'that won't be of no use to you in the jungle, "'but that'll come in mighty handy "'to a poor sailor-man in London.' "'Ah, just as I feared,' he ejaculated an instant later "'as he withdrew a roll of banknotes "'from Polvich's inside coat pocket. "'The Russian scowled, muttering an imprecation, "'but nothing could be gained by argument. "'And so he did his best to reconcile himself "'to his loss in the knowledge "'that the sailor would never reach London "'to enjoy the fruits of his thievery.' It was with difficulty that Povich restrained a consuming desire to taunt the man with the suggestion of the fate that would presently overtake him and the other members of the Kincaid's company. But fearing to arouse the fellow's suspicions, he crossed the deck and lowered himself in silence into his canoe. A minute or two later, he was paddling toward the shore to be swallowed up in the darkness of the jungle night and the terrors of a hideous existence from which, could he have had even a slight foreknowledge of what awaited him in the long years to come, he would have fled to the certain death of the open sea rather than endure it. The sailor, having made sure that Polvich had departed, returned to the forecastle, where he hid away his booty and turned into his bunk, while in the cabin that had belonged to the Russian there ticked on and on through the silences of the night the little mechanism in the small black box which held for the unconscious sleepers upon the ill-starred Kincaid the coming vengeance of the thwarted Russian. We'll return with chapters 19 and 20 next week Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.